Volume Two, Chapter Six of the Antiquary. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Antiquary by Sir Walter Scott, Chapter Six. Many great ones would part with half their states to have the plan and credit to beg in the first style. Beggar's Bush. Old Eddie was stirring with the lark and his first inquiry was after Steenie and the pocket-book. The young fisherman had been under the necessity of attending his father before daybreak, to avail themselves of the tide, but he had promised that, immediately on his return, the pocket-book, with all its contents carefully wrapped up in a piece of sailcloth, should be delivered by him to Ringan Aikwood, for Dousterswivel, the owner. The matron had prepared the morning meal for the family, and shouldering her basket of fish, tramped sturdily away towards Fairport. The children were idling round the door, for they was fair and sunshiny. The ancient grandam, again seated on her wicker chair by the fire, had resumed her eternal spindle, wholly unmoved by the yelling and screaming of the children, and the scolding of the mother which had preceded the dispersion of the family. Eddie had arranged his various bags, and was bound for the renewal of his wandering life, but first advanced with due courtesy to take his leave of the ancient crone. "'Good day to ye, comer, and money ain't of them. I will be back about the fore-end or highest, and I trust to find ye by hale and fair. "'Pray that ye may find me in my quite grave,' said the old woman, in a hollow and sepulchral voice, but without the agitation of a single feature. Here I'd comer, and sign my myself, but we mine abide his will. We'll no be forgotten in his good time. Nor our deeds neither, said the crone. What's done in the body mun be answered in the spirit. I would that's true, and I may will take the tale time to myself, that I led a misruled and roving life, but you were I a canny wife. Were I frail, but you canna hae sae muckle to bow ye down. Less than I might have had, but more, oh far more, than would sink the stoutest brig ever sailed out of Fairport Harbour. Didna somebody say ye strain, at least, sight is born in my own mind, but old folk hae weak fancies. Did not somebody say that Jocelyn, Countess of Glenallan was departed for life. They said the truth, whoever said it, answered old Eddie. She was buried yestreen by torchlight at St. Ruth's, and I, like a fool, got a grief with seeing the lights and the riders. It was their fashion since the days of the great earl that was killed at Harla. They did it to show scorn that they should die and be buried like other mortals. The wives of the house of Glenallan wailed nigh wail for the husband, nor the sister for the brother. But is she even kind to the lang account? As sure, answered Eddie, has we mun all abide it. Then all unlaid my mind, come out what will. This she spoke with more alacrity than usually attended her expressions, and accompanied her words with an attitude of the hand, as if throwing something from her. She then raised up her form, once tall, and still retaining the appearance of having been so, though bent with age and rheumatism, 
and stood before the beggar, like a mummy animated by some wandering spirit, into a temporary resurrection. Her light blue eyes wandered to and fro, as if she occasionally forgot and again remembered the purpose for which her long and withered hand was searching among the miscellaneous contents of an ample old-fashioned pocket. At length she pulled out a small chip-box, and opening it, took out a handsome ring, in which was set a braid of hair, composed of two different colors, black and light brown, twined together, encircled with brilliance of considerable value. "'Good man,' she said to Ochiltree, "'as you would ever deserve mercy, you man gang my urn to the house of Glenallan, and ask for the earl.' "'The earl of Glenallan, cummer, why, he wouldna see any of the gentles of the country, and what likelihood is there that he would see the like o an old gobernancy? Gang your ways and try, and tell him that Elsbeth og the Craigburnfoot. He'll mind me best by that name. Mun see him, or she be relieved by her long pilgrimage, and that she sends him that ring in token of the business she would speak o. Ochiltree looked on the ring with some admiration of its apparent value, and then carefully replacing it in the box, and wrapping it in an old ragged handkerchief, he deposited the token in his bosom. "'Weird, good wife,' he said, "'has do your bidding, or it's no be my fault. But surely there was never sick a brawl pompine, as this sent to a yearl by an old fishwife, and through the hands of a gumberlunzy beggar.' With this reflection, Eddie took up his pike-staff, put on his broad-brimmed bonnet, and set forth upon his pilgrimage. The old woman remained for some time, standing in a fixed posture, her eyes directed to the door through which her ambassador had departed. The appearance of excitation, which the conversation had occasioned, gradually left her features. She sank down upon her accustomed seat, and resumed her mechanical labor of the distaff and spindle, with her wonted air of apathy. Eddie Ochiltree, meanwhile, advanced on his journey. The distance of Glen Allen was ten miles, a march which the old soldier accomplished in about four hours. With the curiosity belonging to his idle trade and animated character, he tortured himself the whole way to consider what could be the meaning of this mysterious errand with which he was entrusted, or what connection the proud, wealthy, and powerful Earl of Glenallan could have with the crimes or penitence of an old, doting woman, whose rank in life did not greatly exceed that of her messenger. He endeavoured to call to memory all that he had ever known or heard of the Glenallan family, yet having done so, remained altogether unable to form a conjecture on the subject. He knew that the whole extensive estate of this ancient and powerful family had descended to the countess, lately deceased, who inherited, in a most remarkable degree, the stern, fierce, and unbending character which had distinguished the house of Glenallan since they first figured in Scottish annals. Like the rest of her ancestors, she adhered zealously to the Roman Catholic faith, and was married to an English gentleman of the same communion, and of large fortune, who did not survive their union two years. The countess was, therefore, left an early widow, with the uncontrolled management of the large estates of her two sons. The elder, Lord Geraldin, 
who was to succeed to the title and fortune of Glenallan, was totally dependent on his mother during her life. The second, when he came of age, assumed the name and arms of his father, and took possession of his estate, according to the provisions of the countess's marriage settlement. After this period he chiefly resided in England, and paid very few and brief visits to his mother and brother, and these at length were altogether dispensed with, in consequence of his becoming a convert to the reformed religion. But even before this mortal offence was given to its mistress, his residence at Glenallan offered few inducements to a gay young man like Edward Geraldin Neville, though its gloom and seclusion seemed to suit the retired and melancholy habits of his elder brother. Lord Geraldin, in the outset of life, had been a young man of accomplishment and hopes. Those who knew him upon his travels entertained the highest expectations of his future career. But such fair dawns are often strangely overcast. The young nobleman returned to Scotland, and after living about a year in his mother's society at Glenallan House, he seemed to have adopted all the stern gloom and melancholy of her character. Excluded from politics by the incapacities attached to those of his religion, and from all lighter avocations by choice, Lord Geraldin led a life of the strictest retirement. His ordinary society was composed of the clergymen of his communion, who occasionally visited his mansion, and very rarely, upon stated occasions of high festival, one or two families who still professed the Catholic religion were formally entertained at Glenallen House. But this was all. Their heretic neighbors knew nothing of the family whatever, and even the Catholics saw little more than the sumptuous entertainment and solemn parade which was exhibited on those formal occasions, from which all returned without knowing whether most to wonder at the stern and stately demeanor of the Countess, or the deep and gloomy dejection which never ceased for a moment to cloud the features of her son. The late event had put him in possession of his fortune and title, and the neighborhood had already begun to conjecture whether gaiety would revive with independence, when those who had some occasional acquaintance with the interior of the family spread abroad a report that the Earl's constitution was undermined by religious austerities, and that in all probability he would soon follow his mother to the grave. This event was the more probable, as his brother had died of a lingering complaint, which in the later years of his life had affected at once his frame and his spirits, so that heralds and genealogists were already looking back into their records to discover the heir of this ill-fated family, and lawyers were talking with gleesome anticipation of the probability of a great Glenallan cause. As Eddie Ochiltree approached the front of Glenallan House, Reader's Note, supposed to represent Glamis Castle in Forfarshire, with which the author was well acquainted, End Reader's Note, an ancient building of great extent, the most modern part of which had been designed by the celebrated Inigo Jones. He began to consider in what way he should be most likely to gain access for delivery of his message and after much consideration resolved to send the token to the earl by one of the domestics. With this purpose he stopped at a cottage, 
where he obtained the means of making up the ring in a sealed packet, like a petition, addressed, For his honour, the Ural of Glenallan, these. But being aware that missives delivered at the doors of great houses, by such persons as himself, do not always make their way according to address, Eddie determined, like an old soldier, to reconnoitre the ground before he made his final attack. As he approached the porter's lodge, he discovered, by the number of poor ranked before it, some of them being indigent persons in the vicinity, and others itinerants of his own begging profession, that there was about to be a general dole or distribution of charity. "'A good turn,' said Eddie to himself. "'Never goes unrewarded. I'll maybe get a good almus that I would hae missed but for trotting on this old wife's errand.' Accordingly, he ranked up with the rest of this ragged regiment, assuming a station as near the front as possible, a distinction due, as he conceived, to his blue gown and badge, no less than to his years and experience. But he soon found there was another principle of precedence in this assembly to which he had not adverted. "'Are ye a triple-man, friend, that ye press forward, sae boldly? I'm thinking no, for there's nigh Catholics wear that badge.' "'Nay, nay, I am no a Roman,' said Eddie. "'Then shank yourself away to the double folk or single folk. "'That's the Episcopals or Presbyterians yonder. "'It's a shame to see a heretic, high sick a lang white beard, "'that would do credit to a hermit.' Ogletree, thus rejected from the society of the Catholic mendicants, "'or those who call themselves such, "'went to station himself with the paupers of the communion of the Church of England.' to whom the noble donor allotted a double portion of his charity. But never was a poor occasional conformist more roughly rejected by a high church congregation, even when that matter was furiously agitated in the days of good Queen Anne. "'See to him with his badge,' they said. "'He hears ane of the king's Presbyterian chaplains, so out of a sermon on the morning of every birthday, and now he would pass himself for ane of the Episcopal church. Nay, nay. We'll take care of that. Eddie, thus rejected by Rome and prelacy, was fain to shelter himself from the laughter of his brethren among the thin group of Presbyterians, who had either disdained to disguise their religious opinions for the sake of an augmented dole, or perhaps knew they could not attempt the imposition without a certainty of detection. The same degree of precedence was observed in the mode of distributing the charity which consisted in bread, beef, and a piece of money, to each individual of all the three classes. The almoner, an ecclesiastic of grave appearance and demeanour, superintended in person the accommodation of the Catholic mendicants, asking a question or two of each as he delivered the charity, and recommending to their prayers the soul of Jocelyn, late Countess of Glenallan, mother of their benefactor. The porter, distinguished by his long staff, headed with silver, and by the black gown, tufted with lace of the same colour, which he had assumed upon the general mourning in the family, overlooked the distribution of the dole among the prelatists. The less favoured kirk-folk were committed to the charge of an aged domestic. As this last discussed some disputed point with the porter, his name, as it chanced to be occasionally mentioned, and then his features, 
struck Ochiltree, and awakened recollections of former times. The rest of the assembly were now retiring, when the domestic, again approaching the place where Eddie still lingered, said in a strong Aberdeenshire accent, "'Fat is the old field-body, Dean, that he canna gang away, now that he's gotten both meat and siller?' "'Francis Macraw,' answered Eddie Ochiltree, "'do you know mine, Fontoni, and keep together front and rear?' "'Ohon, ohon,' cried Francie, with a true north-country yell of recognition, Nobody could I said that word but mine old front-rake man, Eddie Ochiltree. But I'm sorry to see ye in sick a pair state man. No say ill, off as ye may think, Francis. But I'm like to leave this place without a crack with you, and I can win, I may see you again. For your folk don't make Protestants welcome, and that's I reason that I had never been here before. Fusht, fusht, said Francie. Let's that flee stick it the oil. When the dirt's dry, it'll rub out. And come you away with me, and I'll gie ye something better thou that beef bane man. Having then spoke a confidential word with the porter, probably to request his connivance, and having waited until the almoner had returned into the house with slow and solemn steps, Francie Macraw introduced his old comrade into the court of Glenallen House the gloomy gateway of which was surmounted by a huge scutcheon, in which the herald and undertaker had mingled, as usual, the emblems of human pride and human nothingness, the countess's hereditary coat of arms, with all its numerous quarterings, disposed into lozenge, and surrounded by the separate shields of her paternal and maternal ancestry, intermingled with scythes, hourglasses, skulls, and other symbols of that mortality which levels all distinctions. Conducting his friend as speedily as possible along the large paved court, Macraw led the way through a side door to a small apartment near the servants' hall, which in virtue of his personal attendance upon the Earl of Glenallan, he was entitled to call his own. To produce cold meat of various kinds, strong beer, and even a glass of spirits, was no difficulty to a person of Francis's importance, who had not lost, in his sense of conscious dignity, the keen northern prudence which recommended a good understanding with the butler. Our mendicant envoy drank ale and talked over old stories with his comrade, until no other topic of conversation occurring, he resolved to take up the theme of his embassy, which had for some time escaped his memory. He had a petition to present to the earl, he said, for he judged it prudent to say nothing of the ring, not knowing, as he afterwards observed, how far the manners of a single soldier might have been corrupted by service in a great house. Reader's note, a single soldier means, in Scotch, a private soldier. End reader's note. "'Hoit, hoit, man,' said Francie. "'The Earl will look at nay petitions, but I can gie it to the almoner. "'But it relates to some secret that maybe my lord would like best to see it himself. "'I'm judging that's the very reason that the almoner will be for seeing it, the first and foremost. "'But I come by this way on purpose to deliver it, Francis, and you really maun help me at a pinch.' "'Near speed than if I didna answered the Aberdeenshire man. Let them be as cankered as they like. They can but turn me away. 
and I was just thinking to ask my discharge and gang down to end my days at Evanrory. With this doughty resolution of serving his friend in all ventures, since none was to be encountered which could much inconvenience himself, Francie Macraw left the apartment. It was long before he returned, and when he did, his manner indicated wonder and agitation. "'I'm nice here, Jin, ye be Eddie Ogletree, or Carrick's company in the forty twy, or Jin ye be the Dale in his likeness.' "'And what makes you speak in that gate?' demanded the astonished mendicant. "'Cause my lord has been in such a distress, and so preasy as I never saw a man in my life. But who see you? I got that job crooked. He was like a man away from himself for many minutes, and I thought he would hae swarve it high together. And Fanny came to himself. He asked, if I brought the packet, and fat tro ye, I said. An old soger, said Eddie, that does likely is at a gentle's door. At a farmer's it's best to say you're an old tinkler, if you need any quarters, for maybe the good wife will lay something to sell her. But I said ne'er I know the twy, answered Francis. My lord cares as little about the tine as the t'other, for he's best to them that can sew their up our sins. So I even said the bit paper was brought by an old man with a long fight beard. He might be a capuchin freer for fat I kenned, for he was dressed like an old palmer. So you be sent up for forever, if he can find metal to face ye. I wish I was weel through this business thought Eddie to himself. Money folk surmise that the earl's no very right in the judgment, and what can say how far he may be offended with me for taking upon me, say Muckle. But there was now no room for retreat. A bell sounded from a distant part of the mansion, and Macraw said, with a smothered accent, as if already in his master's presence, "'That's my lord's bell. Follow me, and step lightly and kindly, Eddie.' Eddie followed his guide, who seemed to tread as if afraid of being overheard, through a long passage, and up a back stair, which admitted them into the family apartments. They were ample and extensive, furnished at such cost as showed the ancient importance and splendor of the family. But all the ornaments were in the taste of a former and distant period, and one would have almost supposed himself traversing the halls of a Scottish nobleman before the union of the crowns. The late countess, partly from a haughty contempt of the times in which she lived, partly from her sense of family pride, had not permitted the furniture to be altered or modernized during her residence at Glenallen House. The most magnificent part of the decorations was a valuable collection of pictures by the best masters, whose massive frames were somewhat tarnished by time. In this particular also the gloomy taste of the family seemed to predominate. There were some fine family portraits by Van Dyck and other masters of eminence, but the collection was richest in the saints and martyrdoms of Dominicino, Velasquez, and Murillo, and other subjects of the same kind, which had been selected in preference to landscapes or historical pieces. The manner in which these awful and sometimes disgusting subjects were represented harmonized with the gloomy state of the apartments. A circumstance which was not altogether lost on the old man, as he traversed them under the guidance of his quondam fellow-soldier. 
He was about to express some sentiment of this kind, but Francie imposed silence on him by signs, and opening a door at the end of the long picture-gallery, ushered him into a small antechamber hung with black. Here they found the almoner, with his ear turned to a door opposite, that by which they entered. In the attitude of one who listens with attention, but is at the same time afraid of being detected in the act. The old domestic and churchman started when they perceived each other, but the almoner first recovered his recollection, and advancing towards Macraw, said under his breath, but with an authoritative tone, "'How dare you approach the Earl's apartment without knocking? And who is this stranger, or what is he to do here? Retire to the gallery and wait for me there.' "'It's impossible just now to attend your reverence,' answered Macraw, raising his voice so as to be heard in the next room, being cautious that the priest would not maintain the altercation within hearing of his patron. "'The Earl's bell is rung.' He had scarce uttered the words when it was rung again with greater violence than before, and the ecclesiastic, perceiving further expostulation impossible, lifted his finger at Macraw, with a menacing attitude, as he left the apartment. "'I tell you, say,' said the Aberdeen man, in a whisper to Eddie, and then proceeded to open the door near which they had observed the chaplain stationed. End chapter 6th